The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Morning, Heritage. How's everybody doing this morning? Hey, I have a couple of announcements for you guys real quick. Um, as you know, we've been doing these now because there's just too much going on and we're taking way too much time up doing announcements. So if you didn't get one of these, make sure you get one on the way out. Um, but unfortunately, regrettably, we're going to start by telling you the first thing on this sheet you need to ignore <laughs> because uh, um, it says huddle groups meet tonight. That's a typo. Huddle groups are not meeting tonight. Everything else is legit though. So you need to read, read this stuff if you would. Um, a couple in particular that I want to bring up. Uh, man camp is coming up April 1st through 3rd. Men, we're going to be going to Washington Family Ranch. Uh, we're going to be there being taught by Pastor Harvey from uh, Living Stones in Reno, Nevada. And he's going to be teaching through the book of Acts. Our worship team is going to be the, uh, our, not the book of Acts, I'm sorry, the book of Titus. Um, um, our worship team is going to be the, the worship band there. This is a, a man camp for all of the Northwest um, Acts 29 churches. It's going to be a really big event, and uh, I'm looking forward to taking a group with me up there. Today is the last day, if I'm not mistaken, today's the last day to sign up at the discounted price. The price goes up tomorrow. So uh, actually, no, we have leap year this year, don't we? So you have two days, but just for the sake of making sure you do it, today is the last day um, at signing up at the discounted rate. It goes up like 20 bucks uh, starting on March 1st. So make sure you get online. There's a link on our website that goes to the Man Camp website and sign up and register there. Um, and uh, we'd love to have you join us. Second of all, and this will be very uh, applicable in light of today's message too, but um, we're doing a marriage conference simulcast with um, our friends over at Community Bible Church in Central Point. That's this coming Friday and Saturday night. It is Matt Chandler's Mingling of Souls conference, and it's going to be a really good time. It's Friday evening and Saturday morning done at noon. Uh, myself and Pastor Pete Slusher and our wives are going to be do, doing some Q&As and stuff. My wife's super thrilled about that part. But um, other than that, it's going to be a really great and really fun time. Um, registration is like, it's registration at the door is more expensive than signing and up in advance as well. So make sure you go online and do that. We have a link for that on our website as well that actually connects you to the signups that are being hosted at Community Bibles, um, uh, Community Bible Church's website. Um, and someone brought this up this week and I, I totally forgot. It wasn't in the announcements, but if you're single and want to come, um, whether you're, it's a young person planning towards marriage, whatever the case may be, um, man, we would love to have you there as well. And your cost is just half of what the normal cost would be. But there's not an option, I don't think, think to do that when you sign up. So you just sign up at the door, just come out. But uh, that's this coming Friday night. Really encourage you to uh, take this in. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal conference. You're not going to want to miss out on that. And then the last thing is, is uh, our membership reminder and deadlines. Um, we're going to be shutting the door on this. If you weren't here a few weeks ago and uh, when we introduced and unrolled uh, the opportunity for covenant membership here at Heritage Christian Fellowship, um, the teachings that we did in January, particular the one on the 24th that's titled, um, A Healthy Church Has Healthy Members, that is, if you will, your uh, 101 class to be able to be a covenant member at the church. Um, but the shutoff for that is coming up. 
in just a few weeks. So um, if you haven't gotten your paperwork in and everybody I've talked to is like, yeah, we're doing this, and then none of them's turned theirs in. I finally got mine. So uh, let's, let's do that if you would. But um, we need to get that done in the future to be able to become a covenant member here at Heritage. You're gonna, there's gonna be an actual class on a Saturday that we'll get together and talk through the values and beliefs and all those kind of things at our church. So you need to get that in as soon as, as you can. Um, the applications really are coming in and we're super excited to see um, the support and the encouragement and, and just uh, the fact that you guys are wanting to partner with us in this. Um, if you missed it again, go back January 24th. A healthy church has healthy members. You need to take that in. Um, and I do believe, if I'm not mistaken, you can get those uh, membership packets at the uh, reception desk on your way, or the info table. Is that correct, Kathy, on your way out? So if you've lost those, please make sure you get them. I think we even have them available for download on our website. Um, that's enough uh, for announcements for today. If you could turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 5, if you don't have a Bible, stick your hand up nice and high, and uh, one of these gentlemen will make sure that you get one so that you can track along with us. If you don't own a Bible, that is a gift to you, and we pray that the Lord would use that to teach you more and more about his grace and his will for your life. We're going to be in Ephesians 5, and we're going to, we're going to talk a, a little bit from a different perspective about the passage that I told you we were going to skip. So, uh, and a, a couple of people emailed me. They're going to be really happy about that because they were upset that we were going to skip that, which praise God for that, right? Um, we're going to be in Ephesians 5, and we're going to be starting in verse 21 this morning. And uh, let's open up in a word of prayer. God, we thank you for this opportunity to open up your word. We thank you for this opportunity to be led by you, taught by your spirit. We thank you for the gift of your word. Lord, what a privilege it is to be able to, to have in our hands and to learn and study from the words of the living, true God, the Lord and creator of all the universe. Lord, it's a privilege we take for granted. So this morning, Lord, as we're again reminded of the value of your word, of your importance, of your grandeur, Lord, I pray that we would all now just bow before your word, even as we're bowed before you in prayer. May you be Lord over us. May you teach and instruct your people. May we receive your will for our lives and for your kingdom. And may by your spirit, we be empowered to, to apply those things, Lord, to live these things out, even hard things, even difficult things, God. And may we just grow in our trust of you, Lord, knowing that you are for our good. You're not some distant dictator, but you are a loving God and friend, a good father. And so, Lord, we open your word and we bow before it and pray that you would teach us. And so, Lord, for myself, may your spirit even come upon me for the, the task of sharing your word and teaching your word, Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh, my King, my Rock, and my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said. Amen. Ephesians 5 is where we are, beginning in verse 21. And picking up on last week, I want to reiterate something we touched on last week. In the Bible and in the scriptures, there is no separation between that which is spiritual and that which is secular. 
No matter what governments may try to do, no matter what people may try to do to say these are the areas where the spiritual things of life apply and these are the areas where it's secular, the spiritual things, the Bible in particular or God's will in particular doesn't have room over here that's segregated to this area over here um, that's baloney. Those are man-made institutions and barriers that don't actually exist and I assure you God does not honor them. Spiritual and secular is a false dichotomy. There is simply life. And everything of God applies to every aspect of our life. And our identity in Christ is what ensures this. Our, our identity in Christ and our walk with Christ and our understanding of Christ and the word of God applies to every area of our life. So if that's true, and we talk about this all the time, it's not just Sunday morning, but what about when you go to work? What about when you're in school? And if that's true, then it must especially be true with regards to our family. God cares about our family. God cares about the structure of our family. After all, God is actually building a family, is he not? He's adopting people into his family. He refers to himself, as we just sang, as our good father. In the scriptures, we are referred to using family terms. We're referred to as his children. We're referred to as the bride of Christ. These are all analogies and pictures that are meant to represent something real that's actually happening. So, so if God's building a family, then it would stand to just logically reason that God is concerned about the family. You cannot separate your faith from your family. You can't separate your walk with God in church from your walk with God in your home. They're the same. And so, in the book of Ephesians, we have this, this incredible discourse and build with regards to our identity. He's teaching us, Paul is writing us in the book of Ephesians to teach us about our identity in Christ. What Christ has done for us, the gospel. That we had rebelled against our good father, we had rebelled against God, but, but that Christ, seeing that we were now destined toward, destined toward death and separation from God, has, has injected himself into our problem. He incarnated himself into our situation. He lived a perfect, sinless life, went to the cross where the punishment the guilt, the shame, the sin of us who had rebelled against him was placed upon the shoulders of Christ. And, and there he carried and paid our price for us. He rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven. And now those who put their faith in him, trusting in Christ's work for their salvation and redemption, rather than their own efforts and their own work, are saved, is the word that's used. We are born again, the scriptures teach. We are adopted into the family of God. We are part now of a new creation. No longer God's enemy, God's friend. No longer God's enemy, God's son. Joint. The Bible goes so far as to say we are joint heirs with Christ, which is an incredible thing to say. And again, pulling on this, this family verbiage. And so this is who we are in Christ. And the issue that Ephesians is pushing on, really the subject as now it goes into this section that we're studying right now, um, is really laid out for us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. The subject, if you will, or the purpose of the rest of the book where it says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you were called. Another way of saying that is, this is who you are, be it. You are a child of God, so walk as a child of God. You 
are a saint in the, the priesthood of believers, part of the family of Christ. And so walk that way. Carry yourself in that way. Allow your identity in Christ to determine who you are, what you do, and how you carry yourself out in every situation. We are now have a new identity. We have a new Lord, no longer ourselves, but now God is our Lord. God is our King. We are a new creation with a new heart, with new desires, with new drive. Everything is new and everything is different. And so the idea is this. We as believers in Christ, and Paul's writing to the church here. So we as followers of Jesus Christ, we live differently because of our identity in Christ than we would if we weren't. Now that, that seems simple and basic, but it's actually something we struggle with a lot. The, the reality is this, if you are a professing Christian follower of Jesus Christ, it would stand logically to reason and biblically the truth would teach us that your life looks different now than it would if you weren't. So the lives of a Christian and the lives of a non-believer should look different. Your life before Christ and your life after Christ should be different. You look different because your identity has changed. And nowhere should that be more um, applicable, more visible, and more intentional than with regards to our families, with our families at home. And so how are we to be different with regards to how we interact with our families because we're Christians than we would be if we aren't? Well, enter Ephesians 5 and 6. Paul starts out with our identity as Christians, and then he narrows it down to how we operate within the church. And now he's narrowing it down to how we operate even within our families, a smaller subset even still here. And of all the things that Paul's going to talk about with regards to how a family operates under the veil of the gospel of Jesus Christ, with all the things that he could talk about, by far he's going to put most of his emphasis on the relationship between a husband and wife inside a family. Now, right here is where a lot of people check out. I'm single, or our kids are already grown, or I've already heard these kind of things. And I'm telling you right now, it's really important that you don't do this because not only is this something that you might benefit from should the Lord move you into a relationship that you might not have, not only is this something you need to know now for your own children or those you might disciple growing up, but the passage is gonna go on. I don't wanna give away the ending too much, but it's gonna say all of these things point to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in everything that we look at here about how the family operates, we're learning about how God operates with us, about how God views us, about how God um, reacts and, and has relationship with us. So everything here is applicable to every single person in this room. Everybody say, it's for me. It's for me. And now to the person next to you that didn't say anything, say, it's for you. <clears throat> All right, so, so lean in. There's a lot of you saying that, right? So, so here's the deal. Of all the things that he's gonna talk about with regards to family and family relationships, by far, he speaks more to the relationship of, of uh, excuse me, husband and wife than anything else. And the, the reasons, I mean, it's kind of logical. It's almost like a top-down, call it Reaganomics, whatever you wanna call it. But if mom and dad are okay, kids tend to be. If mom and dad are doing well, kids tend to be doing well. The best kind of parental counseling you can receive is probably marriage counseling to strengthen the marriage between you and your spouse. And so much of the emphasis here is gonna be on this. The, the, no kid needs anything more than they need mom and dad to have a healthy, godly marriage. 
And so this is what he's going to push on. So we're in Ephesians chapter five. We're gonna read verses 21 through 33. Let's look at that together. It says this. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And a hush fell over the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church." because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, I am not this morning going to go into a verse-by-verse breakdown of this particular text. Um, If you remember, in the fall, um, for two weeks, Pastor Jeremy, who does the, the... Uh, really the the heavy load, if you will, of the biblical counseling, which we now refer to as biblical discipleship for legal and tax-exempt purposes. Um, (laughs) what what, What Pastor Jeremy is the one who tends to do most of, not just the premarital counseling, but postmarital counseling. Um, Meeting with families, meeting with couples before they get married to talk about purposes of marriage, and then meeting with those after, usually when you guys have wrecked everything and you need some help. Um, That's that's just usually the way that goes down. And and as a result, Jeremy has a, a real good thumb on the pulse of a lot of the issues and things that are going on in our congregation with regards to marriage. So, In October, I was going to be gone for two straight weeks, and so we made a strategic decision at that time to have Jeremy skip ahead in Ephesians to go ahead and teach those two passages, or or those two weeks on this particular passage. And if you were here, you remember, he did, and he crushed it, and it was fantastic. So I encourage you, please go back and revisit these things from in October. It is well worth your time, especially if you weren't here. Um, What I'm going to do is not try to undo, I really don't have a whole lot that I would add to any of that stuff. I want to talk about sort of a, more of a a philosophical idea surrounding this whole thing and kind of press on that, okay? And so to do that, we, we have to first acknowledge right away, even as I read that text, there are people in this room that feel tension, right? I mean, just reading it can make you a little uncomfortable. Maybe some of you brought people today and you're like, oh, seriously, Jeff, this week, I thought you were going to skip it. I thought it was safe. This is a tension-filled text, and it is especially a tension-filled text in our current cultural dynamic. This is a very controversial text. And the issue that makes it the most controversial is really this issue of submission and roles, that's the, the, the real hot button. If you put your thumb on it, what is the issue? It's one of submission. And, and, and here's the reality of it. There are women, godly and otherwise, who would hear things like this 
and either refuse or be terrified to, to have to actually fill this out and do this. To submit to their husband in this way, either something they refuse to do or are terrified to do, and sometimes for really valid reasons. Reasons that absolutely make sense. Abuses of leadership, for example. So many people have taken this kind of stance and made it this ridiculous machismo, I am man, shut up and listen kind of a thing. And there are people still today, you can think, oh, that's old. No one does that. Yes, they do. Absolute abuses of leadership. Even if it's not something full on what, we, what you would refer to visibly as abusive, it is definitely used in very coercive ways. So that men can enter in a relationship and they go and work hard during the day but then come home and sit back and watch ball games and expect wife to make the food and bring me the food and you bring me my beer and you turn on the TV and I want to watch sports and you just leave me alone and you take care of the kids and I'll just sit here and do this. And so meanwhile, wife is going, I submit, I'm killing myself over here. That's a very valid fear, Amen. Or, or there's the other, the other side of that. Sometimes there's just a straight up, not just abuse of leadership, but total absence of it. And, and so a gal can hear this kind of stuff and go, if, if I sit back and wait for my husband to lead the family in the way that he's supposed to, I'm going to get old. I'm going to be waiting and waiting and waiting. He, we wouldn't even be here today if I hadn't nagged him. So step, you want me to submit to what? What am I submitting to? There's nothing there. I'm not submitting to a vacuum. There are a lot of people that feel that way. And then likewise, there's men who refuse or are terrified to die to themselves. Because for one thing, we're kind of culturally conditioned to serve those who deserve it. And so we can sit back and go, well, die to that? She's killing me already, dude. She's nagging me constantly. She's always on my case. It's do this, do this, do this. I work hard, man. Can I not get a break once in a while? You want me to submit to that and to die to that even more? Come on. When she learns her part about submit, then I'll die to myself and it'll work out just fine. Till then, no, I'm gonna be strong. For real. Or we've just been flat out taught to completely and totally live for ourselves. Make your own way, fight your own way, get yours while you can. And so just the cultural notion of us taking our own desires and our own will and constantly submitting that to elevate someone else before ourselves, it just rubs against everything that every prideful man is. And so this text is hard. Amen? Can we admit that? It's hard. It's filled with all kinds of difficulties. It's very difficulty. And, oh, and by the, other, by, by the way, sometimes too, the idea of the vacuum of leadership that can exist with a lot of men, uh, a lot of times it's cowardice on men who don't want to step into the fight, who don't want to get in there and actually lead. But sometimes it's because of the culture that we live in, let's just be honest right now, it is totally and completely emasculating to men in so many different ways. You can't lead. What, name me any guy, father on television right now that is held up in some good and respectable way. They're all buffoons and morons, all of them. And so our culture wants to put down men, put down masculinity, often in response to the difficulties and things that we've done, and sometimes beats men into submission that they just go, fine, I'll just quit. There's some of that too. So it's a difficult text, it's a difficult thing. But here's the first thing, if we can just lay fundamental truth, philosophical truth to understand before we go anywhere else with this, and I'm warning you right now, it's hard, 
hard. Ready? The refusal to submit, the fear to submit, the refusal to die to self or refusal to do that for your wife before anything else, before you can look at your spouse or any of those other conditions that might contribute to you and your refusal to do so, it is a refusal to submit to God first and foremost. That's just what you have to understand to begin with. Now, we'll deal with the difficulties of all that in a second, but please understand, throughout the scriptures, the person being sinned against when we sin is always first and foremost who? God. God is the one who puts all people of authority into authority, be they government, be they teachers, whatever the case may be. And so a refusal to submit to any position of authority or just forget the authority piece, a refusal to do what the scriptures say on the basis of what someone else is doing, that's not, it, does, it doesn't hold water, it doesn't wash. That, that's them. God will deal with them. But God's called you to do something here. God's called you to submit. The issue when we say, I'm not going to submit or I'm not going to die to self is really an issue of faith more than anything else. Because what we believe is, if I do this, my life will be ruined from here on because the thing I'm looking for out of this submission is gonna elude me and escape me. I'll become a slave to this situation and it's gonna ruin my life. But that's a refusal to believe when the scriptures say, if you wanna be great, you become a what? Slave, that if everything goes bad, so to speak, if you do submit yourself to that person and the thing that you're looking for out of that relationship never even does fully come to bear in this life, you are choosing to believe that that means my life is gonna be less fulfilling and less joy-filled because I followed God's word and God's word absolutely promises that will never, ever happen. So no matter what we, when we look at situations and go, this is my scenario and I know what the Bible says, but I don't think I can do this because it's gonna ruin everything. That's an issue of faith and not trusting that God is a good father who desires the best for you and your family, that he's doing a work in you and he's doing a work in the kingdom and he's doing a work in your family and he's doing a work in all these things and he promises, no matter how gnarly any situation is, that he will work all things together for good. It's an issue of faith just straight up belief in God. You believe him or you don't. If you believe him, then you'll choose to live in that way. If you choose not to believe him, then you're gonna take things onto your own because the belief is what goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? God's holding out on me. The tree of the knowledge and good and evil. I know what's good and I know what's evil in my life better than God knows what's good and God knows what's evil in my life. And so I'm gonna choose to be my own God rather than submit to the Lord who has designed me and who has designed all these things. We have to understand that. But just let's, but let's be fair and be honest. Ladies, this is hard. Ladies, this is hard. It is hard to submit in a world full of little boys. It is, right? Amen? Men, can we just be honest right now? We are prideful and designed to be people who conquer. That's what our culture is trying to tell us and to go build things and to go do this and all that. And, and so to, to lay that down and to sacrificially put ourselves below, that doesn't necessarily go with everything that, that we understand. It works against our very core nature as selfish people, selfish individuals. And so it's hard. It's hard. But the reason that we get these things wrong, first and foremost, you've got to understand is because we're starting in the wrong place. It is a vertical issue long before it's a horizontal issue. It is an issue about you and your relationship with God before it's an issue about you and your relationship with your spouse. That is 
always the case, no matter how bad your marriage or relationship might be. This is an issue there. There's no clauses in the text that say, husbands, die to self and serve your wife unless she's a shrew and is always on your case. Then you should probably withdraw for a little while until she gets her act together and realizes how blessed she is to have you in the first place. Then jump in and all will be well. That's not in the Bible, amen? Amen. Ladies, nowhere does it say, hey, submit to your husband as long as he's a godly, nailing it on all cylinders man who does everything perfectly all the time. Those disclaimers are not there. And so we're either going to, the first step to understand is we're either going to allow God to be Lord and allow the word of God to Lord over us, or we will then Lord over the word of God. And we'll say, well, I don't want to do this kind of stuff. I'm not going to look at these things because that's pushing me to do something now that I'm choosing not to do. Understand, it's vertical before it's horizontal, okay? And then understand this. There is, whether you like the format or not, there is a biblically ordered model for what the household, and in particular, what a marriage looks like. It is a biblically ordered model that says the role of husbands is to sacrificially love their wives in the same way Christ loved the church, dying for their wives, for the good of their wives, hoping to adorn and present their wife as this treasure. And at the same time, while men are submitting their will for the sake of their wives, women too are given this this order within this relationship that they are to encourage, respect, and then submit to the leadership of their husband. Not domineering over, not criticizing, not second-guessing, not pulling strings, none of those things. That there is an actual order within the family that works. And you go, but that seems lame. My role, I don't like. I don't want this role. I, don't, I want the other role. Trust God. He designed you. He's created you. He knows what's best. Either we will follow and the word or not. Now, this is... So incredibly unpopular in our culture right now, especially, obviously, with regards to the issue of submission. It is outdated, it is sexist, it lacks tolerance, it's demeaning to women, and there are people outside the church. It's not just unpopular, just so you know, outside Christian culture. It is increasingly unpopular inside Christian culture. There are churches and theologians and teachers all over the place that are constantly looking for ways to interpret some of these texts to say that it doesn't say what it actually says. Like there's gotta be some reason that he said this, but he can't really mean that this is the way we're actually supposed to live. It's probably some cultural dynamic that we don't understand. But please know this church, the Bible doesn't need a makeover. The word of God does not need assistance. The Bible has always been countercultural. Man, we, we wanna be mainstream so bad, don't we? We, we grab onto the big celebrities from the Mel Gibsons to the Tim Tebow's to the whoever the next guy is. And, and we want to grab that guy and say, see, we're mainstream. We're legit with everyone else. Man, this is who Christians are. And look at us. We're mainstream. But I don't know if you've read the rest of the book. That's not in our future. Mainstream acceptance is not in the, the future of the church until Christ returns again but we fight for it. We just want, but I got to fit in now. The Bible has always, always, always been countercultural, but it can be trusted. 
Because we have a God who is good, who is all-knowing, who stands outside of time and culture, and who is for us. And this is why it's a trust thing. Come back to trust. He's for you, ladies. He's for you, men. He's for your joy. The thing you think you won't have if you do what God tells you to do, that's what he's trying to give you. He's for you, but it is countercultural. The Bible has always been countercultural. And, and, and here, here's an example that's in this text. One of the reasons that people want to take this text and say, this can't mean what it means because it's, it's demeaning and imprisoning to women. You've got to understand something. In the time in which this is written, if you want to say, well, it's a cultural issue, let's talk about the cultural issue of Ephesians chapter 5. All historic writings that come out of this time biblical and non-biblical, philosophers and historians like Philo and Josephus, all of them paint a very clear picture of the reality of the relationship between men and women in marriages in particular. And you want to know what they say? Well, let's listen to Josephus, for example. Here's his quote. For saith the scripture, a woman is inferior to her husband in all things, so let her be obedient to him. Wives must be in servitude to their husbands. That was the culture of the day. Women are inferior to men in all things, and therefore wives are to be in servitude to men as inferior beings. Absolutely, 100%, totally unbiblical. The Bible pushed against that kind of mentality. The Bible was the one that said, no, it's not that you serve, you, you wives are all to just be in servitude to their, to their husbands. In fact, husbands, serve your wife as Christ did the church. You're to take your own needs and put them. What master-slave relationship have you ever seen where the master exists to make the slave the one that's elevated? It's never existed. The church was countercultural because it was trying to free women from imprisonment, to free women from this kind of slave mentality. And sadly, that's been used, this very text has been used historically by men, Christian men, and churches to keep women inside a kind of slave-controlled servitude mentality that the Bible is actually trying to get women out of. And so here, here at Heritage, just so you know, we try hard. We have had even very like prayer-filled and tension-filled elder meetings before trying to talk about like, hey, are we in any way restricting women? Like, are there ways here as a church that we're, we're putting boundaries around women that are not? And the reality is this, the only biblical limitation that I can find anywhere in the scripture says women can't do this is it's the role and specifically the specific role and title of elder, nothing else. And so there was a couple of years ago where we were just like, well, what about when we're serving communion and stuff? We always have gals come up and ask if they can help. And we always go, no, 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 you can't do that. Can't do that. That's, that's a man's role. And there came a time where we're like, is that true? You can't have deacons. You can't have women deacons. But there's deaconesses. There's women deacons in the Bible. Uh, cultural, cultural. And so we start looking at some of these things and you start realizing, man, there are, we've put limitations on women here that actually reinforce stereotypes that, that Christianity historically has tried to break down. And people go, well, but, but for example, women serving as ushers and, and, and serving communion and those kind of things, isn't that something that only elders do? No, only the elder presides over communion. But, but why, why couldn't a gal serve communion in the church just like anybody else does? And the most common response we would get as we were really wrestling through this was, well, but here's the deal. 
We need to reserve these roles for the men to lead because if men don't, all the women will and all the men will become lazy. That's a garbage reason to make any kind of decision whatsoever. So so we'll put unbiblical restrictions around women because of the laziness of men. Baloney. And so we desire to create a culture here where the women here at Heritage are elevated the way scripture tells us as husbands and men to do so, to value, to understand this isn't just some girl, this is God's daughter. She's to be honored. And to say, what, she can't serve communion? Have you learned about Martha in the scriptures? Go read some, bro. Like we, we don't wanna do that. But, but the cultural understanding is, and sometimes the church has used, the very sorts of texts that exist to liberate women to be able to serve God with all their heart, to be able to experience joy and Christ-likeness like everyone else. People have used it to imprison. And so now, culture is trying to do something a little different. Before, culture was imprisoning women, and the scriptures were trying to free them. Now, culture is trying to imprison the Bible that was used to free women. And culture is trying to say, well, you, you, can't, you can't do this. You can't teach that. Women submit. Well, what are you, in the 1800s? Are you like a Puritan, Jeff? It's a, put your pilgrim hat on, man. That's not normal. We've evolved. And we understand now that women are, are equal. Absolutely. Women are 100% equal. There is nothing in Scripture anywhere that would say otherwise. Even in the very creation, Adam says, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You know what he's saying? We're the same. I've found the same. I mean, think about him in the story. He's there and all the animals are coming by and he sees male, female dog, male, female horse, male, female, all these different things. And he's seeing all this stuff and he's feeling like, but where's mine? There's only one of me. And then when Eve is brought to him, that first wedding ceremony and she's created from his side, it's not a rib actually, we translate it rib, but it's really not, it means side. And as it's been said before, Eve was taken from the man's side, not his feet that he would trample over her, not his head that he could lord over her, but his side that they could partner. They, that's what it means. He's, uh, she's referred to as his helpmate. And they go, that's demeaning. That means he gets to set the agenda and I just help. No, the Bible calls God our helper. It uses the same word to refer to God. It can't possibly be demeaning. It means partner. It means there's a task set before us and we've been given a partner, but the Bible makes it really clear women are absolutely 100% equal. And the only limitation that's given is God puts a specific leadership role on men and within the church it's given the role of elder. Now within the home, the task of headship or leadership is given to men. But we also understand and we see women who have to do this all the time, single moms, widows, all of these sorts of things. So the limitations a little bit differently, but there is a structured and intentional order within a healthy marriage inside the family. And the Bible doesn't need a makeover. It means what it says. But, but here's the deal. What I'm hoping to be able to show you this morning, and this is my prayer, is that for those of you that feel tension with this, is that, that as we look at this just a little bit, that we can see the beauty and the grace in it. And not just, not just look at this as one of those like, all right, I'm gonna choose to trust because I have to, and I do love God, but I don't like this. Like my, my desire is that we would see beauty in this, that we would understand that there is a beautiful, graceful partnership in this. And here's why. Christ is our model for headship, correct? 
I mean, the, the passage says over and over, does it not as Christ loved the church, submit as unto Christ. So Christ is the model that it points to. And first and foremost of all, it's really easy and appropriate that we, when we're looking at the role of men in leading within a household, if the man is to die to self and lead his family, then the example given is as Christ loves the church. And so we used this text last week. We're going to use it this week. It's, it might be the text we go to more often than any other passage anywhere in the scriptures, but it's in Philippians 2. And I want you to look at this text, how it describes what Christ did for the church, but in relation to this is what the man is to model at home for his wife. It says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory of the Father. Okay, this is a beautiful picture of the gospel. This shows us what Christ has done for every one of us. That he would descend and humble himself to come and live the way we live. That he would do this for our sake. And that his obedience in that area, God has now exalted him and given him a name above every other name. That, that this act of humility was exalted by God the Father. And there's an infinite number of passages in the scripture that back this same kind of concept. If you want to be um, exalted, then you humble yourself. If you want to live, then you die. Jesus teaching the apostles who were desiring position and power. What did he say? If you want to be great, then you're to be a servant in the kingdom. He said, you're not to look at the world and see how they lord over everyone. See how the, the world, he says this in Matthew 20, how the leaders of the world, they just tell people what to do and they just boss everyone around and they just lord over everyone. For you, it won't be so. You're different. You're gonna look different than the world. Your relationship with me changes the way you interact with people around you in every area of your life. And here in Ephesians, Paul's bringing this home with regards to marriage. And he says the same thing, doesn't he? He says, godly leadership does not mean you call all the shots and everyone serves you. Godly leadership is not a privileged position from the standpoint of I gain from all the other privileges. Everyone here serves me. It's not a, I made it, now I get to kick back and rest. And people look at it as this pyramid model almost where there's this guy on top and he's calling the shots for everything. And, and I've said before, uh, biblical leadership is a pyramid model, but it's inverted. And the person who's the head is the person who's the lowest. It becomes your responsibility, everything that goes on in the family. It becomes your responsibility to set the tone within your household. It becomes your responsibility to submit to the needs of your family and serve them before you serve yourself. It means you're tired. It means you're exhausted. It means there's a lot of things you don't get to do that you really wanted to do. But it means that you are trusting that your reward is that God is going to exalt you, not you exalting yourself with simple little earthly pleasures that are going to fade away. It's understanding that, listen... Do this, God's gonna hold you up. 
That day, husband, that you stand before God and he looks at you and looks at your wife and looks back at you and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Nothing will be better than that. Nothing will be better than that. Not one ounce of sacrifice, not one ounce of sleep lost, nothing will be better than understanding that you have cared for faithfully a daughter of the King of Kings and the Most High God. So this is what we live for. We don't, we don't attain for the authority. Did you see Jesus says it? It says it about Jesus there. He did not equate this Godhead as something to be grasped. He, he wasn't desiring to hold on to that authority, but instead he was humbling himself. And so, so many men have taken this passage and, and women submit. Like you have this authority that's worth grasping. Stop it. You're called to die. You're called to give up. You're called to serve and lay down your life for the sake of your wife. Why? That you might serve her, wash her, adorn her, that you might make your wife look good. That's what Ephesians tells us to do. If you go, well, my wife's not looking that good. You better start washing. That's on you. So often we just go, well... If I had so-and-so's wife, I could pull this off. Because <laughs> the grass is always greener on the other side. Baloney, grass that's green is grass that gets water. And if your grass is dry and wrinkly, ladies, don't listen to me for a second. If your grass is dry and brown and crusty and wrinkly, it's because you need to get the hose out and start doing some work, man. <laughs> we say that laughing, but I'm just telling you right now, it's the biblical truth. You have been given to her for a vessel of her own sanctification. You've been given to her to make her look good. Serve her. Adorn her. Wash her. Pray for her. Encourage her. Protect her. Shepherd her. Die for her. She comes first. The kids come second. The church comes third. When do you? Heaven heaven. I heard a pastor say this one time. It's so true. When you get to heaven, God's not going to ask you what level you got to on your video game. He's not going to ask you how big your fish were. He's not going to ask how big your business went, but he's going to hold you accountable for this. But it's a privilege. It's a gift to be like Jesus. It's a gift. Why? Because this is how Christ was for us, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So that's what it looks like to be a man in a relationship. That's what it looks like to be a biblical man, not a boy, but a man. But here's the thing. What does it look like to submit? We're told, ladies are told to submit. We are told to submit to one another, but we don't get a lot of examples on what that actually practically looks like. Well, here's what I would submit to you. Christ is not just our model for headship and leadership. Christ is our model for submission. There's a passage in the book of Mark that we're going to look at here. I've got the text for it. It's in Mark chapter 14. The greatest example of when Christ submitted his will. What he wanted was put aside. Christ goes into the Garden of Gethsemane and he gives us a pattern for what biblical submission looks like. And I'm telling you right now, ladies and men, I want you to listen carefully. It doesn't look like you think. It doesn't look like you think. It's not blind obedience. 
That's what the culture was then. Blind obedience, shut up and do. The leaders would just tell and you just do. Not the case. Look what the text says. Jesus is now, he's in the garden of Gethsemane. The cross is looming and he's heavy hearted. And so what does he do? It says in verse 32, they went to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Now, before we even look at this process of submission, please understand the reality here. This isn't just feigned Christianity, like, oh, I don't wanna do it, but whatever you want, Lord. Please know, Christ didn't want to do this. It was going to hurt. It was going to be hard. He was gonna be separated from his father, which is the worst of all of it, a kind of segregation we can't possibly understand. He didn't want to do it. He wanted another way. And so he went to Christ the same way that we would go to Christ if we found out we had cancer, if we found out we lost our job, if we found out some other issue was coming up. We said, God, please don't let this happen. Lord, I don't want this. I want something different. This is what Christ is doing. He is 100% human. And he's in the garden saying, if there's any other way, Lord, please, if there's any other way. But he submits. But, but, but I want you to see the elements that exist in this process of submission for God. And ladies, this is what God God-centered or godly, I should say, biblically-centered, gospel-centered submission looks like. The first thing is this. He expresses what he's dealing with. He expresses his feelings. Biblical submission, ladies, doesn't mean you just swallow the thing that you're afraid about and don't say anything. Biblical submission, men, doesn't mean they don't get a voice. Jesus says right here in verse 34, I am greatly distressed and troubled. The emotions that are there are creation, are, are, are emotions that were created as part of the human experience when God created us. They're there to be expressed. And, and so women, submission doesn't mean you don't get to have feeling about this or you have to choke down your feeling or your emotion or your fears. Step one, she share, or we share our feelings in submission. By, by the way, this is in all areas. This is whether it's submission to authority. This is whether it's submission to the church, whether it's submission to the government, submission to anything. This is what biblical submission looks like. Step one, there were feelings that legitimately could be expressed. Step two, there were new desires that were shared. I, I'm, I'm afraid of this and I don't wanna do this. I'd much rather do this. I'd, I'd much rather have another way. Men go, well, it's my, it's my call. I don't need input from my wife. Yes, you do. She's your helpmate, your partner in the mission God has given you. The two become one, the Bible says. And so for you to make a decision like that is both figuratively and literally half-brained. You absolutely need input from your wife. 
Biblical submission allows your wife to actually say what she thinks. She's been given a brain by God, in many cases better than yours, and there's wisdom there to learn from. And for you to say, my biblical authority model means my wife keeps her mouth shut is sinful. The desires are expressed. And then finally this, you share your trust. In the end, Christ said, not my will, but thine. His emotions were expressed. His desire, I don't want to do this, was expressed. But in the end, he made the decision to stand upon the will of his father rather than his own will. Now listen, you are not submitting if you're not doing these three things. You're complying. You're just giving in. That's not the biblical model for how a family should work. Remember our our series even just talking about the church in January? A healthy family has in the first week, healthy communication. There's none of this like I'll make all the decisions and I'll leave my wife in the dark. There are too many wives that are in the dark about the financial things going on in their family. There are too many wives that that are in the dark when things like house purchases or job decisions are made. There are way too much of that going on. Biblical submission is not just ignorant compliance. It's not just I'll tell you what to do and you do it. It is there's an actual relationship here. There's an actual conversation here. But there's an element of trust here as well. And you go, man, that just, Jeff, I, I, I hear you. But in the end, you're still saying, do what he wants to do. Well, first of all, let me tell you this. I believe that if you're doing all these other steps, that if the husband is seeking to lead the way that he, that he is designed and called by the Bible to lead, and you're seeking to submit and do this the way the scriptures tell you, I think the times, the number of times where you're gonna have such disagreement on what to do that you end up having to submit, I think they are gonna be really few and really, really far between. I can only think of a couple maybe in the history of my marriage. 18 years, I can only think of a couple. So, so, this is not going to be something where you're going to be living under the oppression of someone's thumb. There's a partnership and a joy in the relationship. But, but when the time comes that the two people just don't see eye to eye, there's a submitted trust that takes place after the feelings have been shared, after the will and input has been there when communication exists. Yeah, Jeff, but I'm still not doing it. Okay, but now let's look at what this looks like, though, on the flip side. What does it look like when you're in the position of authority and someone is submitting to your will. What's the godly model for that? Well, we find that in Exodus chapter two. There's a great example of that. The people of Israel are going through slavery. They're being oppressed. They're being held under the thumb of an oppressive ruler. It says in Exodus two, verse 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. So there's an issue. There's an oppression. There's a problem going on. And their cry goes up to God in his position of authority. So what did God do? How did God lead? When he understood something was going on in his family, the children of Israel, his chosen people, what did he do? How did he exercise his his authority? Step one is he heard them. It says in verse 24, and God heard their groaning. He listened. The words came and he didn't go, I don't have time for that, la, 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 la. He listened. He heard what was being said. Step two, he remembered the covenant. 
This is important. It says, he heard their growing and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and Jacob. In other words, this, he remembered what he promised to do. Men, when you stood before that pastor and said that you would serve and honor and cherish and love that woman for the rest of your life, well, if there's an issue, if she's coming to you and she's saying, yeah, I'm, I'm afraid here, I'm struggling here, I'm, I'm, I'm wrestling with some emotion here, and I don't, I don't want this. He listened, and then he remembered his role in the covenant. This is what I promised to do for them. This is the promise I made to them. This is the covenant that I made to them. Step three, he saw and understood. It says, verse 25, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. He saw what was going on. He understood what was going on. Even in the gospel account, our situation where our sin had separated us from the presence of God, Christ incarnated himself into the problem. He experienced the emotions we feel. He experienced the temptation we face. He saw and understood the reality of our situation. He understood that. He didn't just write it off. He didn't just go, I'll get to it when I get to it. He said, this is, these are my children. They're struggling. I, I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna understand what's going on. I'm gonna know what's going on. And then what's step four? Take a look at verse seven, Exodus three, verses seven through eight says this. And you're gonna see that pattern again. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And then what? I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up to a land, a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. He says, I've heard their issue. I've seen the problem. I understand what's going on. And now I'm gonna act with response to the good of the people. I'm going to rescue them because I desire to exalt them. I wanna see them in a place of blessing. I wanna see them thriving. I wanna see them doing well. And God injects himself into the situation. That's what godly leadership looks like when people are called to submit to your leadership. Um, elder board, we have our first uh, shepherding elder board next Sunday. All this right here is what I was gonna teach you guys next Sunday. We'll figure something else out. Because within the church, this is our requirement, right? Because how many church leadership boards have you seen before? How many examples of church abuse and things like that have you seen with leaders and elders because they do the same kind of thing? Submit, just do what I say. Oh, you're just the sheep, I'm the shepherd, I know what I need to do. And it becomes abusive and the sheep of the church exist so that the shepherds of the church can kind of just do what they want and fill this role of esteem and power. It's not so. We're called leaders, shepherds, elders, all of us. We are called to understand what's going on, to hear the cries of the people and to act with regards to their good. We are agents of God in the maturation and even the blessing of the people that we serve. This is what a healthy marriage looks like. Ladies aren't being called to submit to your just random authority. They're being called to submit to your purpose in Christ because they know that you're gonna act in their good even when they disagree, that you're gonna seek God for them and that your ultimate desire for your family is not your free time on the couch or to be able to go hang out with the guys, but that your ultimate goal in the relationship is to make your wife look spectacular. I can't imagine a woman that would have a problem with that. And, and ladies, 
You have to help them with this. I, I don't know about some of you guys, but I don't always take correction well, especially in the, in, in the intro. I, I have a pride. And, and I've had times, even in elder meetings before, where, where it's been like, Jeff, this isn't right, you can't do this, or this is wrong. And I find this pride like, oh yeah? And it hurts, and it's uncomfortable. And, and, and this happens in our relationships. But you have the opportunity to encourage, to build up, to show, the word uses in the text, respect. Man, a man can deal with a whole lot of things when he believes his wife respects him. But, but to feel disrespected is one of the most deflating things in the world. And it will create a vacuum of leadership. It doesn't get them off the hook for it at all. But I'm telling you, both of you, please understand, you are for each other. You're helpmates together in this. And the whole purpose of all of this is not just so everybody's happy, but God's doing a work in you through this. And God's doing a work in your husband through this. And he's building something even in your family that testifies the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world out there. Marriage is gospel reenactment. And he's doing things in your heart as he does these things. And then again, we get to step back and go, and even in the end, he is for me. He's for my joy. Uh, there's a, a great historical example of this and we'll be done. Abraham Lincoln, one of the most respected, one of the most honored, one of the most favorite presidents in, in, in U.S. history, right? One of the worst marriages in U.S. presidential mar- history. His wife was horrible to him by all accounts and not just to him to other people she came from a completely different background she came from a very wealthy and affluent background abraham lincoln was more poor hard-working type guy Um, she had an incredible spending habit like literally would deal with the pressures and tensions of being in the white house by spending one of his biggest issues is as you know they're given the the first lady is given a budget when they move into the white house so that they can redecorate and kind of make it their own and she went infinitely over budget and there's letters you can still read where Abraham Lincoln is writing going, are you kidding me? What am I supposed to do about this? It's even told that Abraham Lincoln used to keep cash in his pocket as he walked around the office to pay workers in the White House to stay after their interactions with his wife. She viewed his travel as abandonment and took it out on him. And she had all all sorts of other issues to to her own credit that were much more significant. In fact, she finished her life in an asylum, actually. It's a really sad story. But but it was a very troubled, difficult relationship. But he wouldn't quit it. And he could have then. It's not like Twitter and news and all that kind of stuff where if a president leaves his wife or kicks her to the curb, no one's going to know back then. It's not like today. And there were people that would come into the White House, like whether it be businessmen or other dignitaries or whatever, and they would get so frustrated. And Lincoln famously said to one of them, you can put up for 15 minutes with what I've been putting up to for 15 years. Like it was a very difficult relationship, but he wouldn't quit. Now why? Is it possible God was doing something in him? Is it possible God was doing a work and serving and changing and maybe not just in that marriage, but for the greater good? Because what was Abraham Lincoln's role historically for the United States? He fought for unity for our country and to set people free. 
and his policies, trying to maintain unity. He did not want America to split into two other nations, no matter what the people in the South disagree with. He wanted the country to stay unified so bad that his policies were horribly unpopular. We love him now. They, nobody liked him too much back then. And so much so, he was convinced there's no chance that I'm getting reelected. And he was making policies and decisions before that next election, trying to fight to keep the nation together, knowing all that's going to do is cause the snowball to get bigger. These are not going to be popular policies because half these people are just done with one another. And he was convinced he wouldn't get reelected. But in the end, the Lord was doing something in his heart about commitment, about vows, about unity, and about value that has served our country to this day. And now what do we do? We esteem him and exalt him for his humility. Men. This is what we're called to do. I'm always harder on the man. I just am because I am one and because I know my own weaknesses and because when I study this stuff, I'm on the floor in my office repenting before I come teach it to you. Men, this is what we're called to do. We have the job of making our wives look glorious, serving them like other ladies should look at their husbands and go, why can't you be like that? Seriously, seriously, this is what we're called to do and to believe that you are going to suffer, your life's going to suffer, that you're not going to have joy in your life because you did this is a fatal mistake. It is a basic misunderstanding of the promises of God and it is a lack of belief in God's goodness and his plan for goodness for your life. Trust him and do this. He is for your joy. And ladies, I hang out with these men, I get it. But God is doing something. God's doing something. And there's a culture that's telling you, if you be like this, you're being outdated, you're being old-fashioned, you're throwing your worth away, you're throwing your life away. But the Bible has always been countercultural. Has always been countercultural. And in the end, we have to choose to believe, is God for my good and does God know what he's doing or not? And if you don't believe that, that's when you start dickering with the Bible here and start making, well, we'll take this out, we'll take this out, we'll take this out. And in the end, you're not gonna have a faith to stand on. God knows what he's doing. He's for your good. He loves you. Amen, church? Okay, with heads bowed, Sam's gonna close us in song. And I just want to give everyone in this room opportunity to go before the Lord. Because if there's anyone in this room that's like, yep, I agree with everything Jeff said, and I'm glad I'm not struggling with any of it, you are lying. There are areas of repentance in this situation, in this issue, for every single one of us. Amen? So let's not leave this place without doing business with God in this. Men, women, remember your covenant, remember your promise. Remember your motivation, the gospel of Jesus Christ that, that promises that he's doing a work. Remember that our home's not here because our identity is in Christ. Our home is in heaven and we exist now here to serve and love one another. Remember who your spouse is, a son, a child, a daughter of the most high God. Remember our calling. And let's pray first for the forgiveness of God for our failures, repenting from our sin and our, our failures or our full-on stubbornness in these areas. And then let's ask, as we talked a couple of weeks ago, this then let's go to the Lord and say, Lord, now will you empower me to live the way I am? 
you help me to love my wife the way I need to? Will you help me to break out bad habits or old molds or examples that our, our dad set for us that were terrible? Whatever the case may be, God, may you become the model for me. May your spirit empower me to live the way you have called me to live. Let's pray and sing.
it's really easy for us to talk about these things and pray about these things and say, now we want to go do these things. But doing these things is what? Hard. Someone says they're in a difficult marriage. They're being redundant. It's hard. But by the grace of God, look, you can do this. Whatever marriage you're on, whatever it does, you can do this. It's going to, men, it'll be awkward. Man, I'm supposed to be the spiritual leader in my house. I'm supposed to pray with my wife. I've never done that before. She's going to think it's fake. It's going to be awkward. Yeah, but God will honor it. You can do this. Gals, it's going to be awkward. It's going to go against everything that you feel at times. It's going to be difficult even by the grace of God. You can do this. And God will honor it. There is no reason every single person in this room cannot have an unbelievable God-fearing marriage. There's no reason other than a just stubborn unwillingness to do what God calls us to do. That's it. If you want a great marriage, it's here for you. The church is here to help you with this. Men, we're, every Thursday morning, I got 20-something guys at the hub looking at these very things. Ladies, there's women's Bible studies and mentor stuff coming out. The women are far outpacing us, frankly, in some of these things right now. This marriage conference coming up next week, man, that, what's more worth a Friday night and a Saturday morning than the most significant and important relationship you'll ever be a part of in your life, apart from yours with Christ? There are resources. We want to love you. We want to walk through these things with you. We want to help you. There are community groups, to people to come alongside you, all of these things. And then you have the spirit of God and his word. There is no reason other than sin that you can't have an absolute, amazing, godly, successful marriage. And then to know that on the other end of that, yeah, it's hard work. Yeah, it's going to be difficult. But there is joy and fulfillment at the end of that that you would never trade for anything in this world. God has a plan, God has given us the tools, and he doesn't set us up for these kind of things just simply to fail, amen? And what if my spouse doesn't respond? God will honor your faithfulness. You just do your part. God, I just pray that you would just empower everyone in this room to do this, Lord. I pray against, Lord, the flesh and the pride that wants us to, to wiggle out of these things. I pray against even human frailty that would cause us to forget these things when we walk out of here, God. I pray, Lord, that, that here we might be known, Lord, for a, a desire to serve our husbands and wives and of mutual submission and partnership to the glory of God because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May your spirit empower everyone to do it. Lord, may you, may you um, lead. Lord, I pray there would be tons of couples showing up at that church, Lord, for this conference Friday night. I pray that the Bible studies, men and women, would be full of men and women desiring to grow in their relationship with you so that they might lead and, and, and better come alongside their spouse. I pray, God, that the marriages here would thrive. I pray that we wouldn't shy away from difficulty and hardship, but that we might press into it knowing that your spirit is doing a work. And I pray that you'd be glorified in everything that's done here, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. So listen, go sign up. Marriage conference, go. I love you guys. We'll see you soon.